welcome, ladies and gents, to episode number six of your buddy John Heights, John Mueller, here with you today, or whenever you're listening to this. I got a great guest on for you today. Uh, how many people can say they actually worked with Buddy Holly? Not many, and uh, this man did, and um, he was a part of the vocal group called The Roses. I'm talking about David Bigham, and a uh, super nice guy. What a such a nice guy, great guy. Um, first met him back in uh, Clovis, New Mexico, and uh, they used to do the Clovis Music Festival there that we were part of, and uh, really enjoyed uh, his company and his knowledge of the music business back then, and of course the Norman Petty Studios, where he lives on the grounds as of today. The Roses vocal group were inducted into the Rockabilly Hall of Fame, and the group consisted of Robert Linville as tenor, Ray Rush as baritone, and David Bigham was the bass. They, of course, sang background vocal parts on Buddy Holly's Think It Over, It's So Easy, and quite a few others, and also did the background vocals for some Buddy Knox songs, uh, a Roy Oberson, quite a few songs, and then uh, even one song from Waylon Jennings called When Sin Stops that was produced by Buddy Holly, actually. Waylon was only about 16 years old when they did that song. Today, David helps run the tours over at the Norman Petty Studios in Clovis, New Mexico, where, of course, Buddy recorded most of his hits, and uh, I highly recommend that tour when they get back up, opened up and everything. You will be amazed at the history there. Well, without any further ado, please welcome my very special guest, Mr. David Bigham of the Roses. David, what a great honor and pleasure it is to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, John, I'm honored, too, and it's uh, really good to hear your voice again. Yours as well. I... um... I remember those times we got to work together at the Clovis Music Festival, and uh, that was such an honor for me to be there uh, next to you and singing. Who were, who were singing with you and George uh, Tomsko and uh, Stan Lark and um, there at the museum, and then um, we went over to the studio. It was so, so much fun. Yeah, yeah. And and occasionally, Gary and Ramona Tallette, yeah. who sang with... Uh, uh, Sullivan, Nikki Sullivan, as on the backup of "That'll Be the Day." That's right. We did a lot of shows together, and uh, and later on, Peggy Sue even joined us. That's right. That's right. That was so fun. That was such a fun time. And that's um, true. What a what a great um, what a great pleasure to be there. So um, let me start from your uh, early childhood, David. How did you get started in? Um, singing is that something you learned on your own or are you just naturally gifted or did you take lessons or well i don't mean to sound like i'm a wonder but i it just kind of came natural to me sure my mother my mother played piano my dad sang my sister sang and we did a trio type situation at church but the way i really got into the music was my mother had a piano and two of my friends were members of the of the acapella choir in Odessa, Texas. And they came up to our house one night to learn a new song. And I got to singing along with them. And they said, you need to come audition for the choir. I said, said, uh, said, we could use somebody like you. And I said, well, I thank you for the invitation, but that's not my cup of tea. Well, they actually took me by my arms and forced me to go in. <laughs> now, now, mind you, I do not read music. Right. So when I went in and auditioned, I had to sing this song, but fortunately, 
I knew enough of the bass parts where I could follow the notes pretty well. Nice. And that's that's where the natural gift comes in because I never had a lesson in music. Wow. Or reading music or anything like that. So that's where it came in, and that's how I got into the music industry was uh, really by accident. It's very cool. Uh, and how did you meet... Uh your other Roses members, uh, Robert Linville and Ray Rush, how did that come to be? Well, when I when I made acapella choir, I also became a member of the Boys Quartet and uh, a group called the Madrigal Singers. And by the way, I made All-State for two years, so that, that's my feather in my cap. Yeah. Anyway, in 1953, I believe it was, <clears throat> Elvis Presley came through Odessa, and it was in our high school gym, and it was crowded to the gills. I mean, you could not have gotten a fly in there. <laughs> and and all the girls were screaming and, and uh, dancing and all that, and we thought, man, that would be nice to be able to do something like that. <laughs> so, so we would buy 45 RPM records, and listen to them until we learned the parts. And then we got to singing here and there and stuff like that. And uh, by the way, we only had two instruments. We had two ukuleles. Two ukuleles? A tenor, yes, a tenor ukulele and a baritone ukulele. And that was our group. And then Roy Orbison lived 40 miles west of Odessa. But we had television station there. And on Saturday back in the 50s, if you could get a sponsor, you could have about a 30-minute spot on television. So we joined him on those and uh, started doing gigs with him, and and uh, and everything just took off from there. Wow. And <laughs> so did, what was it like? What was Roy Oberson like when you were working with him? He was just an individual. Yeah. Roy, Roy was talented. There was no doubt about that. But Roy was also uh, very anxious to make something of the music. Sure. In fact, in fact, Roy and Buddy Holly were so much alike in that they knew where they wanted to go, and they just worked and worked at it until they got there. Yeah. And uh, that was the thing I admired about him more. Now, myself, I was interested in chasing the girls or, <laughs> you know, things like that more than I was the music. So, but I enjoyed doing the music too. So, yeah. But well, anyway, that's, that's how we got with, uh, with Roy. In 1955, Roy took us to Memphis, Tennessee to Sun Records. Wow. And we recorded two songs with him at the studio there. One song was Sweet and Easy to Love, and the other one was uh, Devil Doll. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. So, anyway, uh, Roy wasn't happy with what he got back there. And he said, let's go to Clovis. There's a guy up there that's got a studio. So, we all came up to Clovis, and thankfully, Mr. Petty liked our sound, I guess, because he asked us if we would consider moving up and becoming his staff vocalist. Wow. And, of course, it took us about 60 seconds to say yes. And <laughs> everything was history from that point on. 
So what was it uh, like working? Was that Sun Records studio session produced by Sam Phillips? Was that was he there? Well, we met Sam, but he actually had two engineers that did most of the uh, uh, recording work. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. And then, too, the studio was not near as nice as the one that Norman Petty had yeah. here in Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, Sun Records, they let people smoke in there. And it reminded me of an old smoky pool hall. (laughs) (laughs) And then we came to Clovis and everything was neat and tidy. No smoking. Yeah. And uh, Norman Petty was the type guy that he didn't charge by the hour. He charged by the session. He didn't believe the creativity came by the hour. That's great. So until the session was over and he was satisfied you didn't have to go home after your time was up, you know. Right. So, so anyway, it was uh, it was nice to be able to do that. But between the two studios, Norman Petty was uh, by far the better studio, I think. Yeah, for sure. Now, Sam did have a lot of talent down there. Oh yeah. But that was just from from there locally, more or less, because Tupelo was only a hop, skip, and a jump from memphis and uh, all the other people like johnny cash he was from there in tennessee so it was basically the same there as it was up here a lot of the talent up here came from uh, west texas and new mexico nice did you guys when you were singing your background parts at norman petty studios did you gather around one microphone or were you on three separate microphones do you remember Yes, we were on one microphone. Wow. In fact, I don't know if you recall or not, but there was a microphone on a stand that could be raised and then turn another knob and it would dip down. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of a drop mic. Yeah. But you could but you could put voices around that microphone and it would pick up everything in that in that vicinity. And that was the microphone that we used primarily was that drop microphone. That's really cool. And so you guys really had to know your individual parts because there's no like uh, separation <laughs> with headphones on and stuff, right? Oh, no, there was no separation. In fact, every once in a while during a session, Norm would uh, stop and he would come in and say, David, you need to move a little closer to the mic. Oh, wow. Or or Robert, back up just a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that and that was one nice thing about working with Norman Petty. He could separate sound like no other individual. Yeah. And you can listen to any of the recordings that came out of the studio, and they're just as clear as as anything can be. Yeah, they're crystal clear. I'm, I'm amazed at how well they uh, they sound better than anything today, if you ask me, as far as their, clar- oh, yes. their clarity and the warmth and uh, analog yeah. sound is amazing. Right. Very cool. Well, that's that's one thing I tell people when we do tours. I tell them that the difference in the music of the 50s and today is that in the 50s, you had to have a little bit of talent. <laughs> <laughs> well said, David. Well said. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, the singers back then, I mean, there's no, there was no pitch correction like they do today. There was no, oh, uh, no thousand different takes where they would comp together the best tracks for one. They had to do it all perfectly one time all the way through. If they didn't, they would re-record the entire song again. 
And um, oh yeah, it's it's yeah. it's really uh, it's amazing. Like I I I agree with you. I think uh, the singers were a lot more talented back then for some reason. You know, for that reason, I should say. Right, right. Well, I'll I'll tell you one thing about Norman. We did all of our recording at night. Several reasons for that, and I won't go into it. But nevertheless, when we would come in and everybody got there, Norman would go into the control room and put his his headphones on, and then we would uh, listen to the group that we were backing up yeah. and listen to the song and then try to work something out. But in the meantime, while we're doing that, Norman was in there adjusting volume levels on the microphones. Wow. So that by the time everybody got pretty well down what they were going to do and how they were going to do it, we pretty well knew the song and everybody else did too. And you could take off and record, but you didn't have to stop a lot because of mistakes. Right. Because right. we had we had basically rehearsed for a couple of hours or so. While he was setting so, up. So he didn't yeah. have his own engineer. He basically was a producer and an engineer at that studio. Very, very true. He, he, uh, Norman did it all. Wow. And when did you actually get hooked up with Buddy Holly? How did that come to be with the, uh, with the group uh, working on his, some of his songs? Well, <clears throat> when we came to Clovis in 1957 with Roy Orbison, yeah. Buddy Holly had already uh, come out with That'll Be the Day, which went to number one, of course. Yes. And, uh, but there was another group called The Picks, that was from here locally, and Norman was using them somewhat on uh, on backup singing. And uh, I'm not trying to downgrade the, the pick sound or anything, but it just didn't fit rock and roll. Mm-hmm. It had more of a church ring to it than it did rock and roll. But one of them was also a heavy drinker, and it got to where he, he wouldn't show up for the sessions. So finally, Norman said, well, we're going to switch from them to the Roses. And that's when we came in and did Think It Over, and It's So Easy, and Lonesome Tears, and <laughs> just different songs. Yeah, that's neat. And uh, did you get to hear Buddy's reactions to those uh, background no, we No, we never did, but evidently he liked it because... The Buddy and the Crickets came over, myself and Ray and Robert and Jerry Allison and Joe V. Malden. We were all outside smoking cigarettes and stuff like that. Buddy always had had sessions with Norman where they would discuss new songs, tours, or whatever. Yeah. And so they were in the in the control room while we were outside. And I very distinctly remember this. I said distinctly, distinctly remember. Sorry about that. (laughs) Anyway, we were outside and Norman came out and he walked up to us and he looked right straight at me, Ray Ray and Robert, and he said, I need to see you boys inside. Well, I thought, man, he's fixing to fire us. You know, we were (laughs) screwed up somehow or another. But we walk in, go into the control room, and Buddy's standing there. And Norman asked, he said, how would you boys like to tour with Buddy Holly? Wow. And, of course, our our excitement 
if we had let it go, it could it could have been heard down in Odessa. <laughs> yeah. we, we, we were so excited about that. Yeah. Uh, because every, every young person and most of the people that were doing that work then, they were all in their late teens or early 20s. Sure. And, uh, and the excitement of being able to be on a record label and then to be able to tour the country, uh, I mean, that was the ultimate, you know. Oh, absolutely. It still is. I mean, that, that's the gold, uh, gold standard today. I mean. Right. So was this the tour you toured with them on the, um, what was it, Alan Freed's Fall Show of Stars in 1958? Is that correct? Yes. Wow. That was the tour we were on. Uh, uh, that was the one right before the last tour, the winter dance party that Buddy did. Right. So uh, we were in the fall, and he was in the, in the early part of the year on that other tour. So <laughs> what was that like, uh, touring? That must have been amazing. Who all was on that tour? <laughs> well, it was very exciting. Uh, you know, tours back then were different from what they are now because Alan Freed would have a complete lineup of, of artists. And uh, so he wouldn't... Uh, work up the tour they would commit to it but they wouldn't last the tours wouldn't last more than maybe two to three weeks because the other artists would have other engagements they had had already committed to sure and if if they dropped out then uh, the advertisement had to be changed up which would have been expensive so they were shorter tours but anyway we left here went to new york city Spent about a week up there before the tour started. That's when Norman sent us over to uh, the uh, st- studio, a Photoshop studio, and we had a promo pictures taken. And we had just recorded Almost Paradise and a song that Ray and another friend of mine wrote called I Kissed an Angel. Wow. And uh, Norman got us on Dot Label. So while we were there, he sent us also over to Dot to meet the people over there. And then uh, later on when the tour started, we were in a 1958 DeSoto station wagon that Norman had purchased for the crickets. Ah. But, it, but then Freed had three, I believe it was, buses where the other, the other artists were riding in it. And uh, so we started out from New York and went up through New England, back across Canada, down through the Midwest, and back up the East Coast. But on that tour, we had Frankie Avalon. We had Bobby Darren, who had just come out with Splish Splash. Wow. And we had Clyde McFadder. We had the Olympics. We had the Coasters. We had Jack Scott. We had Dwayne Eddy. Wow. We had Jimmy Clanton out of uh, Louisiana. Do you remember the show, The Little Rascals? Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> okay. The little black boy that was one of the Little Rascals? Yeah. That guy was the MC of the tour. His no name kidding. was Harold Cromer. Wow. So we got to meet him and visit with him a lot, too. Did he talk but about being on was- The Little Rascals? <laughs> And no, we didn't talk too much about that, but he, he talked about everything else, you know? Yeah. And, and, and John, I was going to mention one other thing about the touring. Sure. It, it, 
we were young, but it was also very, very tiresome. Oh, I can imagine. One day we would uh, we would get into a city, and we'd do one show that night. Then we'd get back on the buses and the, and the vehicles and go to the next city before we got a hotel room. And then that night we would do two shows, spend the night, get up the next morning, get in our vehicles and go to the next city do one show, get back in the vehicles and go to the next city and do two before we slept again or slept good again. Oh my gosh. So you can see how it could be very tiresome uh, because you were traveling all the time. You didn't have any time to really relax or anything. Yeah. And you, and you were in a cramped vehicle. So, you know, it would wear you out pretty good. Were you and uh, Ray and, um, Robert sharing the driving duties, or was it a designated driver? Oh, there was no designated driver, but in that station wagon, which, by the way, we were pulling the little teardrop trailer that we had. Yeah. It was white, and I painted on the side in red was the roses. Nice. And it, it gave our phone number and all that. But anyway, in the vehicle... Uh, was Tommy Alsop, Jerry, and Joe B. of the Crickets, and me, Ray, and, and Robert. So there was actually nine people, no, four be seven people <laughs> wow. that was in that station wagon. <laughs> of course, we had all the luggage and everything in that little trailer we were pulling. And, and occasionally, Robert and I would ride the bus just to visit with some of the other artists. Yeah. Just to just kind of get to know them, you know. Yeah. Do you remember any spe specific artists that you uh, spoke with that you liked? Well, we really liked uh, Frankie Avalon. And uh, Dwayne Eddy was a charm to work with. He was just a guy from Phoenix. and uh, But he was really, really nice. Cool. And in a, few, in, in a few minutes, I'd like to tell you the story about Dwayne Eddy, if I may. Yeah, please. But... Uh, but we just like to visit with them uh, because groups back then played off of each other. Right. If their style was a little bit different, then you might try to work that style into what you were doing. Sure. Or or the sound or whatever, you know. So how, how old were you, David, uh, during this tour? Uh, were you a teenager or in your early 20s? I was I was uh, 20 years old when we did the tour. Wow! So I had just turned I had just turned 20 on June the second, so I was uh, just barely into my 20s. In fact, when I came when when I came to Clovis, uh, I was 19 years old when I when I came up here and got started. Wow! Were your folks? Uh... Were, the, were your folks, did they have any qualms about you going on this uh, rock and roll tour when you were like 20 years old? Yeah. No, really they didn't. Uh, and I think it was because of the music part. Right. Uh, if I had been uh, working as a roustabout on an old rig rig or something, they may have been more concerned. But, uh, but no, they didn't have any qualms about it. Of course, you know, times were changing. Sure. So it was clothing, and uh, some of the clothes that we bought and wore, my dad made some comments about those, but he never did make me take them <laughs> off or anything. But, but anyway, no, they were pretty well 
with us on that. They, they didn't care. And of course, we would go back to Odessa periodically and uh, visit, you know, and spend the night and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So you're 20 years old and you're on a major rock and roll uh, tour with Alan Freed producing it. I mean, what did that feel like? Do you remember? Uh, did you just feel like you're on cloud nine or? Yes, it did, John. Uh, we felt like that we were on top of the world. Yeah. Uh, we were wanting to be on a record label, which we were. We wanted to be able to travel like other people did, and we were doing that. And uh, I guess the main thing was, just like Norman Petty has mentioned several times, we were just doing music and enjoying what we were doing. Yeah. And uh, that was the key to it. If you enjoy what you're doing, then you try to do it to your best, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Um, let me ask you a personal question, if I may. Do you remember uh, okay. the day that the music died, the, the, the horrible plane crash? What, uh, where were you at and, and what, uh, what, what do you uh, remember about that day? Well, I remember it very vividly. Uh, of course, with that time, buddy, and the crickets had split. Yeah. And uh, so we were here back in Clovis. In fact, Robert and I were still in bed in our apartment. And the phone rings, and it's Norman Petty. And he asked if we had, had seen the news. And we said, no, we, we just woke up. He said, well, turn your TV on, which we did. And, uh, of course, the news was on, and they kept repeating it, ah. that uh, Buddy and the Big Bopper and Richie were killed in an airplane crash. But Norman said, if you will, please, get dressed and come down to the studio. He said, our phones are ringing off the wall. Right. So we went down that day and spent nearly all day on telephone. Uh, talking to people and answering their questions. Oh. Wow. Wow, that must have been so difficult, just answering the phone and saying, you know, yes, it's true, <laughs> well, yes, it's true, you know? Yeah, right. And, and it really was devastating because three months earlier was when we were on tour with Buddy. Right. And uh, thinking, man, this is going to be great to be able to travel with him and all that. And then you wake up and find out that he's had been killed, uh, it, it really took the air out of the balloon, so to speak. Right, right. Did you guys continue working with other groups after that at, uh, at Norman Petty Studio? Well, yes, we, we stayed on at the studio. Uh, I say we did. I don't remember how long it was when Ray and Robert finally got out. But in uh, February of 59, I married a girl from here in Clovis. So I stayed on, and we were doing a few sessions and everything. In fact, we did uh, some work with uh, the Crickets and a guy named Earl Sinks. Yeah. Uh, that was trying to do the, you know, the singing part of Buddy. Sure. But we did work with them, but we weren't doing sessions like we had previously. Mm -hmm. uh, somehow or another... The groups, I guess, that were coming up and wanted to be on, they either got on or got out of it or whatever. We were still doing sessions, but not like we were. Right. And uh, I had just married that girl, and uh, so I decided I 
was going to have to get out and find a job of all things. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I did. I left the group, and uh, and uh, that was how I got out of the music. Uh, people ask me, well, why didn't you try to stay in music? And to be honest with you, I was a gutless guy because I, uh, one of my goals then was to be a member of a chorale group like the Fred Waring Singers or, or, or the others, you know. Yeah. I thought they had a beautiful sound and everything, and I wanted to be a member of those. But since I couldn't read music, I didn't have the guts to try. Mm. So <laughs> I never did try anymore after that. Yeah, it's interesting. I spoke with Nikki Sullivan about that once, about uh, how he was able to just, you know, I guess he left the crickets and um, had to have been hard to do to just kind of phase out of that kind of a, you know, a popular yeah. situation for him. And um, he just said, you know, it was like you had mentioned earlier that the, the touring life was very difficult, he, he found. And he uh, yeah. kind of got burned on it, burned out on it a little bit, even though he was, you know, it wasn't there a tremendous amount of time, but as far as touring, but, um, he, uh, got enough of a taste of it that, uh, it was, uh, you know, he wanted to do other things, I think. And, um, right. You have to make that choice sometimes in life. It can be difficult though, you know, very much so, especially when you loved the music part of it. Uh, right. Right. It's very, it's very hard to walk away from that. And of course I didn't, I didn't completely give up music. I did a lot of singing with the radio and things like that, you know. Yeah. Driving down the road and you hear a song pop on. Well, if there was a backup group, I was doing the bass part and all that. So, but it wasn't for publicity. It wasn't that at all. So, how did you get? Um, I remember when I was there in what was it, two thousand four or so, that uh, you were actually living on the property of. Norva Jack, which is Norman Petty's right. next door to Norman Petty's studio, it's on the same lot, if you will. Yes, and, right. Uh, you were li- you were living in that building, which I believe you still are. Is that correct? That's correct. How did that come to be? Well, uh, Mr. Broad, did, did you meet Kenneth Broad? I believe so. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, well, he was uh, one of the owners. He and a Another gentleman by the name of uh, Walker were co-executors of uh, Norman Petty's estate. But anyway, uh, there was no one here, and Kenneth had a couple of dogs that he used to just kind of, you know, ward people away from it and everything. But both of those dogs were poisoned, and uh, he wanted somebody around to, show a little activity and everything to let people know that there was somebody here and deter them from breaking into the building. Yeah. And, and, uh, that's how I got to be able to do this. I, well, Robert and I had come over before a music festival and did some mowing and, uh, trimming and stuff like that. And then when I, when Kenneth asked me if I'd like to do that, I, said sure he said well he said i saw the way you worked when when you and robert came over and he said i knew that you were the type of person i wanted to have around so 
that's how I got here, and I, I still I still owe a lot of gratitude to uh, Kenneth Broad. Sure, he's a, he's a wonderful he's a wonderful person. Yeah, and you've been there. You've been living there for how many years now? About twenty two years now. Wow. That's time flies, doesn't it? Oh, it sure does. It sure does. <laughs> In fact, John, I just uh, on Tuesday of last week, June second, I turned eighty-three years old. Ah, congratulations! Happy birthday! Well, thank Belated you. birthday! Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Wow, very cool. And you still, uh, you still um, test out your pipes today? You still sing a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. We had a little tour yesterday. Uh, it was just a very small one of some people that we know, but there was a new one in it. And when I played Think It Over, I sang along with it, and also on It's So Easy. But uh, but but that's about it. Yeah. Our, our, our music festivals still go on. Of course, not this year because of the virus. Sure. But the group that are actually members of the... Uh, Music Festival Committee. Mm-hmm. They're they're younger people. Yeah, and their and their interest is in music that followed the fifties, like the like the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Sure. And uh, so so I don't get on stage anymore because I I don't know their music and don't really care for it to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah uh, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, we used to have when we were. During the music festivals, we used to have uh, or try to get some of the people that had recorded here yeah. to come back and 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 do the show. But those people are getting way on up in age now. Some even older than I am. Sure. Uh, so we can't get that anymore. And then what groups are out there that do the fifties? They charge so much that you can't make money off of it because. We're losing the audience for the '50s music pretty fast now. Yeah, and uh, it doesn't draw like the later music does, or the country and western, or whatever. Fortunately, we're still doing tours, and will I guess after this pandemic is over, and uh, there's some younger people in the tours that's uh, pretty well keeping it still alive that's great that's great yeah i, I noticed yeah. with my winter dance party show that um sometimes uh some venues are uh, telling me the same thing that they're losing some of the uh, 50s yeah uh, audience per se but uh i haven't seen it really too much in the uh attendance so much it's we, we're still getting like sold out shows and stuff but um i'm hearing that's that great. from i'm hearing that from presenters that they're starting to Look more to the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s music, which, uh, yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. To me, the 50s music, it's just, uh, it's just, it's as vital to me today as it was then. I, I really, oh yeah. I mean, we touched on this earlier about the the, the sound quality of that music. Uh, to me, it's just if I hear a Buddy Holly song come on the radio today or a Chuck Berry song or Roy Orbison song. I just, it just stands out. They stand out to me. Very much. Very much. So yeah, there was just something about that music. And in some ways, I think it was the, the characteristic of the song and that it was somewhat of, 
what daily life was about back then. Yes. Like uh, Buddy Holly's Peggy Sue, when he, when he asked or says, if you knew Peggy Sue like I know Peggy Sue, it, it just makes it more personable. Yes, yes. I, I talked to Nikki Sullivan about that once where I said, uh, why do you think this music has um, persevered for so long? And he said, well, John, it, it's, it was fun, happy music, <laughs> you know. Oh, it, yeah. It's a joyous yeah. music that makes you feel good. And it was, you know, pre, uh, pre-political pre uh, messages in, in the in rock and roll music era. And uh, I think that's what right. really helped it uh, have a lasting popularity. Yeah. Well, and you were there, David, so that's a really cool thing. Is there anything that I uh, missed that you would like to share with us today? <laughs> I would like to say that uh, uh, you can still get in touch with the studio for a tour. Yeah. And uh, you can go on the, on the Internet, and there's a website called Super Oldies. And uh, But if you'd like to have a tour... There's a phone number you could call and make an appointment for a tour because we're not open every day just when we have a tour. I highly recommend uh, doing that tour. It will bring uh, chills and, uh, I mean, you'll just feel the aura of Buddy Holly and the crickets Oh yeah. at, at that studio. And like you said too, David, that studio is... Uh, it was impeccably organized, and uh, it looks exactly like it did back then, you know? It's really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the only thing that's changed is the color of the paint and maybe the carpet on the floor. Sure. But everything else, tape recorders and uh, speakers and microphones and all that are still 50s and 60s. And uh, I think this studio is probably one of very few that you can actually walk through. And if you want to touch the piano that was used or the organ that Norman played, you're welcome to do that. And I don't know of many places where you can do that, you know. No, that's, you're absolutely right. Take advantage of um, being able to uh, touch the actual uh, microphones and instruments that were there back then. It's just incredible. Um, yeah. Has anybody recorded in there recently, David? Well, not recently. We 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 did have a guy from California, and I can't recall his name. Is now. that Scott Porter? I know Scott Porter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Uh, he came in and recorded here, but he he brought in his own equipment uh, because everything in our studio now is basically what it was then, but it's not all wired up. Right. Right. Plus, plus we can't find engineers that can do the sound that you're going to get out of the studio uh, productively. Sure. They just don't know how to mix, how to separate, and uh, you don't get the same quality of music. Yeah, I can imagine that would be tough to find somebody that could work with uh, analog equipment like that, like they used to. Yeah. So um, let me just ask this final question about Robert and Ray. Um do you, uh, when was the last time that you spoke with the other Roses, Robert Linville and Ray Rush? Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Uh, with Robert, uh, when we moved back to Clovis, Robert still lived here, and we had kind of a tradition of going to a local Mexican food rec restaurant 
on Friday night. Nice. And then Robert had had congestive heart failure, and for some reason or another, they didn't go on a Friday night when we did. But after dinner, Marilyn and I went by his house, and I could tell that Robert was having difficulties. Sure breathing and so and I, I told him I said Robert if you need to go call me I don't care what time it is or anything call me yeah and about two o'clock that morning and his widow called and said he's gone oh and that was the last time I had talked to Robert Ray Rush you know in Lubbock they stopped doing the buddy holidays yeah I remember that but the, yeah, but there was a group out of uh, Brownfield. It was a classic car club, actually. They started doing shows, and Robert and I went over for quite a few of those. But I went over one time, and there was Ray Rush. This was like in about, uh, oh, about 2000, I guess, somewhere along in there. Sure. And that was the first time I'd seen Ray since 1959. Wow. Yeah, so we kind of got together, and uh, but we stayed in touch for a little while after that, and then uh, suddenly he disappeared. Robert, I mean Ray, was good about disappearing, <laughs> and uh, and no one knew where he was or how to get in touch with him. And then, like I said earlier, uh, a couple of years ago or so. I had word that he had passed away, but I can't confirm it. But uh, that was the last I stayed in touch with Ray. Right. Uh, Sometimes when you just want a jaw, I can tell you some funny stories on Ray Rush. <laughs> well, maybe share one of us, <laughs> share one of them real quick here. <laughs> okay. One of them was when we were in New York getting ready to go on that tour. Yeah. Uh, Roy and Dell Evans sure. was there in New York City, and they were staying at the Waldorf. And Ray said, well, they're cousins of mine. Let's go see them. So we walk in, and everything is gold-plated and all that, and they wouldn't even let us go in hardly because we didn't have a coat and tie on. Right. But Ray was always getting us into something like that because – it was part of his family, so to speak, which wasn't true, but nevertheless, that was one story. Another <laughs> story is when the tour was over, uh, Tommy and Robert and I were going to come back to Clovis in, uh, in that station wagon. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we were ready to get back and get some rest. But the night before we left out, we told Ray that we were going to leave at 10 o'clock in the morning to have his luggage down there and be ready to go. Sure. So Robert and Tommy and myself, we we got ours loaded up, and then we got in the vehicle and sat there for a little while, and Tommy, Tommy was going to drive, and he looked at his watch, and he said, well, it's 10 o'clock. And we started the engine, and we drove off. I don't know how Ray ever got back to Clovis, <laughs> but, but we left him in New York City that night <laughs> or that morning. Wow, what but a anyway, story! But anyway, Ray was, yeah, Ray was always getting 
things like that going on. So he was kind of the wild man in your group, I take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely the wild man. <laughs> or he was. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But anyway, it was enjoyable. It was uh, something I'll never forget, that's for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, David, what a pleasure to have you on the show. I really appreciate it, and uh, what an honor to to talk to you again. And um, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. And um, I hope uh, I hope I get to see you sooner rather than later. I um, I don't get to Clovis, New Mexico, that often anymore. But um, maybe uh, maybe sometime soon. I, I think we might be uh, booked in Lubbock, Texas, sometime in 2021. Oh, so maybe. Uh, can make a visit over there. I'd love to see you again. Yes, right. Yeah, just whenever you're going to be in that part of the country, I think uh, you're on Facebook with Marilyn, I think. Yeah, sure am. Or, yeah, just just let us know where you're going to be and when, and we'll make a trip over there. Sounds good. We sure will, because we'd love to see you. I've always thought that you were the nearest to Buddy Holly of, of anybody I ever saw. Oh, appreciate that. Thank you, David. I, uh, <laughs> well, I, I know he's a, he's a, he's a tough nut to, uh, to come close to because, uh, there was only one Buddy Holly and, um, that's true. What a, that's what a, true. what a genius. Um, and you, you, my friend are one of the few people that got to actually work with him. And that's, uh, that's really cool. And that's, that's why I wanted to get you on this show because, uh, I, I think, uh, people need to know, more about what your experiences with uh, with Buddy Holly and the crickets, and um, so I'm so so happy you were able to share some of that with us. I really appreciate it. Well, John, it's been my pleasure, and I I thank you for inviting me to be part of it, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you, David. Well, you t- say hello to Marilyn for me, and uh, all my best. I'll do that. Take care now. Thank you so much. Okay, John. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye bye. There he goes, ladies and gents, David Bigham of the Roses. What a super nice fellow. It's so great that he could do this show. And um, hey, that tour he was talking about at the Norman Petty Studios, where uh, rock and roll history was certainly made in Clovis, New Mexico. The phone number for a tour, should you be in that area, is 575-356-6422. And make sure you call well in advance, like a couple of weeks, because... Uh, it's kind of a tour situation where they're open, you know, periodically. It's not like every day, so make sure you call in advance. That wraps us up for Episode 6, ladies and gents. Stay tuned for our next guest. Please make sure you like us and share the podcast on whatever form you listed on, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get it. But just make sure you like it and review it and uh, subscribe. Let everybody know about it. Thank you so much. Take care out there. And we'll see you on down the line. Hey, buddy. We'll see you on down the line.